welcome to Unknown Worlds of the Merrill Collection. I'm your host, Oliver Brackenbury. The Merrill Collection of Science Fiction, Speculation, and Fantasy is the Western Hemisphere's largest publicly accessible archive of genre materials. Each week, we explore a different world of genre fiction in conversation with a special guest. Today we'll be speaking with Norman Perrin. Since 1990, Norman has built and run the Four Winds Storytellers Library, a privately run, publicly accessible folklore research library for storytellers and researchers, preserving collections of tales from countries and cultures from around the world. With the deep connection between folklore and speculative fiction, and Norman's being a storyteller himself, let's go see what he has to say. And here we are with Norman. Hello. Hello. So let's start with sort of a very early uh, life question. Growing up, how did your love of folklore develop? I would say that it came from my memories of the Ottawa Valley many years after I left it. And I was living in St. Catharines at the time. And people kept on asking me, where are you from? And I didn't know really, because I had led a, an isolated life. So I became interested in the folklore of the Ottawa Valley and found it was mostly about loggers and there's lots of singing and Mac Beattie and his Ottawa Valley Melleteers. And so my interest in the folklore there seemed to be a little on the thin side. So I started making up my own folklore <laughs> about the Ottawa Valley. So my interest of folklore, since folklore, much of it is made of stories. Then as I learned more and more folk tales, I learned, learned more and more about the folklore of different countries, particularly of Ireland and England. And right now my interest is Morocco because oh, I spent okay. a festival there about a month ago. So anytime that I start becoming involved with a country or a culture, I'm curious about the folklore because it's a folklore that's kind of the relatively quiet part. It's not like storytelling. It has a performance aspect and so storytelling i like to think is the folklore speaking to the world and explaining it the terms folklore and folk tales are often used indiscriminately is there a difference between them or do they basically refer to the same thing one is a subset of the other folk tales are considered a subset of folklore if it's a living tradition and an oral community Folklore is everything. Folklore is the person who says, well, I hope that doesn't happen on wood. That is folklore. Whereas if you want to tell a ghost story, there's a ghost in a tale. Folk tales are a way of explaining our world to ourselves. And sometimes those explanations come from traditions hundreds, thousands of years ago. And then they kind of carry along until all of a sudden somebody says, hey, that story has an application here. For most people, folklore is something from a time that's long gone. Is folklore stuck in a certain age, or would you say it can continue to evolve and remain relevant? Anything that is not viable gets left by the wayside. It's forgotten. Folk tales and folklore are continually um, adapting. And unfortunately, that also is one of the reasons why the far right wing culture that is emerging 
is so strong because it is becoming a new folklore. Not all folklore is good. Mm. But it's not all pixies and fairy dust. Sometimes it's our darker sides. And unfortunately, there's parts of the human psyche. They invent those stories to perpetuate the idea. The election was stolen. Those people mm. are evil. Hate them on sight because they are the wrong kind of people. And those are the stories, unfortunately, which catch hold. And uh, so I'm going to say that folklore is, is a two-edged sword. And uh, mostly, though, the folk tales that my fellow storytellers share, we try to counter all of that. That uh, the other is not the enemy. The other is our friend that we have yet to really know. And that's what I like to think is that storytelling. I, I'm surrounded by a multiplicity of stories. And therefore, I understand there's no one story. And as long as I remind myself of that, then I know that although people are different, and yes, I've met people that made me feel uncomfortable, but I know that it's my job to learn their story to hear it. The term storyteller is such a broad one. It can encompass everything from writers to visual artists to a family member talking about their day at school. In your case, it's a particular art form or vocation. When you describe yourself as a storyteller, what do you mean exactly? You've actually asked a very complex question because the response of each person is different according to the individual. Today, an oral storyteller is somebody who speaks live to an audience, a story that is often based on traditional structures, a folk tale or a fairy tale. They may have gotten that story from other storytellers. They may have gotten it from books. Some very lucky people have gotten it from unbroken oral traditions. Could you please tell our listeners what being a storyteller means to you? First, what it means for me is finding a voice that I didn't have before. I was 29 years old before I heard about something called storytelling. I didn't even know that it was an art. So when I heard about a festival in Toronto, and I lived 70 miles away, I decided to hitchhike to Toronto, and I heard my first storyteller, Paul Keynes Douglas, and he blew me away because he was a storyteller from Jamaica, but he spoke about the things that I kind of put down about myself, being a farm worker, being poor, being without a voice. And yet there was him up on stage from a totally different culture, but telling me about how I can explore my own culture in the Ottawa Valley. As I became more involved with other storytellers and storytelling groups, I realized that storytellers reflect culture back to the people. And many times that culture has been lost. People don't know who they are or where they came from. Canada is a country of immigrants, they like to say. But one of the things that many immigrants leave behind are the stories that made them who and what they were back home. So for me, a storyteller has a responsibility to reflect back to the people themselves what they were and what they could become. Like, for instance, one person once asked me, about stories for Karen people. They are a ethnic 
countryless group of people that live in northern Thailand, Cambodia, etc. And like many other refugees, they ended up in Canada. My friend wanted to tell them their stories, but these were young children. They were separated from the culture or the tradition bearers. So she asked me, do you have a book on these people or about these stories? And I said, yes, I do. I mailed it to her. So in that respect, I like to think that I gave the children themselves what maybe their parents or their grandparents, who are normally the culture bearers, uh, a piece of that. Do you remember your first gig as a storyteller? First storytelling gig was at a fantasy con in Hamilton. Somewhere I still have the brass torque that was my payment for that. <laughs> well, that's lovely. And actually bringing it over to the books from storyteller to collector, as a collector of texts, what common elements of folklore do you find the most fascinating? What draws you? The insight, I think, and the enjoyment people have. Like, for instance, have you ever seen a Morris dancer? Uh, only on the screen, not in person. Okay, then. Well, they are uh, ubiquitous in England, and we have several Morris groups here in Toronto. They're jingle, they've got their costumes, they've got... I can't really paint you a proper picture because this is sound, but just think of sticks whacking, bells jingling, and guys singing body songs. <laughs> and uh, and other groups are uh, dressed in other outfits. There's styles of uh, Morris dancers. And so uh, for them, it's, it's folklore. Folklorists have studied it. They write it in books. I could pull you some books out on it. But the thing is, folklore is folk lore. It's not something for scholars, although they think it's theirs sometimes. <laughs> and uh, it is something that people do, and they don't always call it folklore. It's, well, this is, we've done this all the time. We've done this forever. And now in England, people have self-consciously gone back to pick up lost folklore and then uh, have fun with it. You mentioned that it was the insights that you find in folklore that tend to draw you as a collector. Oh. Were there any particular insights from folklore that you would like to share with us? Yes, I can actually, if you don't mind me getting a little um, on the new agey side, maybe some people might see it. But I love Please. the way folklore is embedded in features in the land. They'll say that rock over there is where your great, 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 great grandfather fought off a bunch of brigands, or that's where this person uh, was taken by the good folk. And they'll be careful to say the good folk. They won't say the fairies or anything like that. It's hmm. a bit of a joke that's not a joke. So for me, folklore allows us to live in a landscape that means something to us, even if it's a city. So I think that folklore is something that is important to give us a sense of identity and when we take away elements physical elements of that folklore then a sense of identity is lost so you've made it clear that um identity uh, and insight wisdom you know uh geographic uh, knowledge are all elements of folklore is there anything else that you feel is a quality that makes it important for us to preserve these stories? You know, any other feelings you might have that are presumably at the core of why you've done what you've done these past 32 years? Well, you use the word preserve, 
And that's the difference between a jar of pears and the pears on the tree. They're both good, but one is completely different from the other. The preserved pears or the preserved folklore has to be really, really supported. We used to have something called Caravan in Toronto. I don't know why it died out, but maybe it was because it wasn't supported well enough. Folklore, like our preserved pears, have to be properly prepared and then displayed afterwards. It is its own thing. All right. Well, time for what feels like the biggie. Um, Could you please tell us the story of how did the Four Winds Storytellers Library come to be? I've been trying to form an answer to that question for many years because the answer is different at different stages of its existence. At the very, 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 very beginning, yes, I will say long time ago, there uh, was a storyteller in Toronto and he didn't know any stories. And like a lot of other new storytellers, he collected books. And when the collection reached 900 books, the storyteller decided to share it with other people. Then it went into another phase. And that was a, a passion to make it as big and complete as possible. So I went chasing after different cultures. And the collection began to grow. And it was like growing worlds. Near the beginning, I wanted to figure out what's a good name for this collection. Well, when I was a kid, there was a song I loved. My favorite song in the world. Four strong winds, you know, four strong winds up low, lonely, seven seas that come high. All those things that don't change come up with what may, but our good times are all gone and I'm bound for moving on. I'll look for you if I'm ever back this way. And I think stories are like that. You know, they wander around the world. And so I became more and more familiar with books and find out in certain stories are here and this culture and this country and this place. And of course, interacting with other storytellers, I began to appreciate the fact that stories were on the four winds. And by the way, people started consulting the library. And so that's when I started to grow the parts of the library that were about storytelling. Why do we tell stories? What cultures have stories? What's the history of storytelling? Remember Ron Evans, who's a First Nation storyteller. Ron kind of was looking at me and my table of books. He has a, a rich and wide personal repertoire of stories. He doesn't use books. He learned his stories from a living person who learned it from a living person. And I looked over at him and held the book out. And I said, you know, the stories are inside the book that I'm holding right now. But it's up to us whether or not those stories are seeds or the book is a coffin. And that's where the metaphor of the four winds really comes into play. May I ask, how did you get the word out? Because you, you run it out of your home. Was it just sort of through a network of friends? Or, or how, how did you make you know the writing community aware that there was this wonderful resource that had just begun? They didn't know about it at all at the very beginning. And it took about 10 to 15 years to get word across. I started this in 1990, Hmm. so 32 years. 
And the difficulty I had, I realized then, was that people can't wrap their minds around the concept. Why should anyone make their own library available as a public library or open to others? Back in the 1800s, libraries like mine used to be everywhere. People would pay subscriptions like 20 pence a year to take out books. But that whole concept was lost. And so what I did is I just kept on talking about it. I kept on mentioning it. And I held events. So if I'm talking about the books have to speak, well, then I put on storytelling salons where people got together to share stories, either personal, traditional. We had tea and coffee. We'd go and tell some stories. Then later on, when I had a bigger space, I started storytelling concerts. I asked somebody, you really like telling these Persian stories called the half-pay car. And so we put on a, a full day's worth of stories from one single book. He memorized the whole thing. And the effect of this was people began to see the library as a real resource. I get calls. The last one was about Dragon Tales last week. And I have a whole section of the Four Winds on dragons and <laughs> other books, of course, in Japan and China, etc. have dragons as well. So dragons are a popular subject. What other topics are in high demand with people using the library? The <laughs> other one is death. And the third one, I would say, is growing now, is stories about ecology and nature. That section is growing. And one strange one popped up recently. I have a book on folk tales and cooking and talking about cultures recovering or retaining their old culture. One of the best ways of doing it is food. I'm curious, maybe if there are any other sort of challenges you've encountered while running the library. In particular, one reason I really wanted to talk to you was because, as you mentioned, you're running it out of your home, which I would think would provide perhaps some unique challenges compared to, say, our own beloved Merrill Collection, which is at least a public institution. Well, the, yeah, the challenge is, is access. And now, by several miracles along the way, I managed to always find an apartment I could afford that was big enough to take on the collection. People can come to this collection, to my apartment. As I like to tell people, I don't own the books, they own me. And I kind of coexist in the same space. People ask me, where do you sleep? I sleep in a small corner and I am surrounded by the books. Once I got the idea that this place exists and storytellers understood its purpose, then people were more likely to come by and visit. And one of the lucky parts about having these places is they were also large enough for performance spaces. It had become well known enough when a delegation of storytellers and children in their care came to Toronto, they said, can we come to the Four Winds Library? And they said, yes. So it slowly had that awareness. The other challenge is conservation. I have a whole set of books from the Journal of American Folklore. And the, the paper is so old that uh, the acid used to make them is slowly eating the paper. Now, the answer to this is, for a lot of people, 
is to digitize everything. And that improves access to the information. But I believe that we need to hold the books. We need to be able to look through them. Um, I don't have to pay money every year to uh, the journal to access their online website. So that's useful. I have immediate access to it. So the challenge has been of getting people aware of it has been that. But the physical challenge of preserving the books is somewhat there. And the last one is to deal with how do I grow the collection? Yeah, I mean, have you ever gotten outside funding? I mean, that's a lot of books. Well, I'll give you a quick, quick, quick running down of how I raised money. First of all, at the beginning, it was out of pocket. Then I realized I had duplicates because I couldn't remember if I had the books and I had a couple boxes of this. Why not sell them at the Festival of Storytelling? Eventually, I raised about $24,000 in total um, selling books. 20000 goes a long ways, even though uh, it took me about 15 years to make it. And by the way, use of the library is free. I do not ask money for it. I even have trouble asking for donations, but I do mention that. And the money stays here. It's I'm surrounded by the money I've spent. I can look at a $20 bill. That $20 bill, which is a book, can be a hundred different stories. I love it. Um, so you've already talked about some of these things for sure. There's the relationships you've developed uh, through it, the joys of reading the text themselves. Are there any other sort of great rewards that you've gained, you know, in the experience of running this library that you'd like to share with us? Meeting people, having people come by to visit and say, wow. Now, location I'm in right now is the same building. But before they renovated the building, I lived on the third floor, not the second. And so people had to go, da, 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 second floor, da, 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 third floor. It's high ceilings, 12-foot ceilings in the building. And they go down a corridor, and then they go down another corridor, and they open up the door, and the first word they would say was, wow. <laughs> I wish I had a recording of that, because I'm not making that part up. I lived for that wow part, and that's part of the enjoyment I got. But I had to move. I went down a level, and uh, so that space is no longer in existence. That room used to be a room used by the Toronto Mechanics Institute. The Mechanics Institute in the 1890s gave lectures, instructions, taught young men how trades, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, like colleges that they couldn't afford it. And in the 1890s, they amalgamated all of their books and collections and formed the Toronto Public Library. So my library is in one of the original starting points of the Toronto Public Library. That kind of coincidence I love. And so and when you say what a kind of enjoyments do I get, it's that. So um, how have your goals or your approach to running the collection changed over the years since uh, it began? Well, um, I began, it had changed a lot. It stayed uh, in the realm of being a research tool for the longest time, until about four or five years ago. Storytellers don't have their own museum or 
centers or anything like that. Now, there are lots of places around the world that have folklore departments, and it's usually folklore, not folktale departments. Mm. And many of the storytellers uh, go to public libraries. They don't really have access to university collections for different reasons. And so I decided that what we need, we being storytellers, I guess, we need a library of our own, a center of our own. Where do we put this? So I went around to different universities, and the guy just looks at me and says, we can't take care of our own collection, never mind 6,000 books. Okay. I went to other places and then to other places, and every time I got the same message, it doesn't fill our mandate, we can't take care of it. So I had to drop the idea of the books going to an existing institution. The difficulty is the books are physical. They take up space. They tend to do funny things like um, become brittle. Pages Hmm. fall out. You have to build catalogs. You have to be able to find things. And that's what, I, by the way, I built into the, into the library. There's a whole section on how to find stories, and I can do that right now. My goal is to create a world center for studies and storytelling as a caretaker and connector of stories. And I wanted to boil this down to one word, this whole thing. And the word that came up was connect. So what does that mean? Well, connect storytellers to storytellers. Connect the story to the listener. Connect storytellers to the resources. And also to connect individuals and communities to their cultural heritages. So there we have the grand vision. The problem is, is now it's easier to carry an idea than it is a couple tons of books. And hopefully I'll be able to talk to people, which is why I'm so pleased to be able to talk to you about this. That I hope that somebody out there will catch the same passion as, I, as I've as i got. Well, as you say, I mean, you know, this uh, podcast is dedicated to spreading awareness of the Merrill, but also of the people who come on and speak and what they speak about. And yeah. maybe this will catch the right ear. I, By the way, I met Judith once. I was meaning to ask, actually, as we might ask a question, uh, if you don't mind, um, because, you know, we are ultimately about uh, the Merrill, about here. genre fiction. What, uh, what's your relationship with the Merrill Collection? And I guess Judy herself. She came by the Spiral Garden and uh, wandered around. Now, it's my job to be storyteller in residence there. And uh, I wandered around and I told stories. But it was just like watching her there. And I had been a science fiction fan many years before before I moved into the realm of folklore. And I think that the fantasy writers and the the, uh, science fiction writers, they're using or wandering around the ruins of old folklore and borrowing a little bit of this and borrowing like that and pulling and pushing the pieces together. Andre Norton was one of my favorite writers when I was a young adult. She wrote for young adults. And part of her, uh, the world she created were, I think, was the Forerunners. And they left behind planets full of old technology, which may or may not work, and became often the MacGuffin 
for our young hero to go search for whatever it was, usually with a telepathic animal. I love those interactions with them. So I believe that the storyteller and folklore, we have the same relationship to the present day world as those uh, explorers in ancient civilizations on other planets. Um, just because somebody is using these doesn't mean that it was it is being used in the way that the original people did. They just left it behind in different forms of stories and ideas passed on from person to person. And sometimes they carved it on a piece of rock. And that's why we have Gilgamesh. Absolutely. I'm wondering, what have your experiences been with fantasy or sci-fi, just speculative fiction authors, which surely some of them have come by uh, your collection in the past? No. I think the two worlds are kind of separated. I would love it uh, if they did. But there was one person who wrote a book called All the Broken Things. And she took out the entire Vietnamese section, about 15 books, so that she can have an insight into the Vietnamese culture. So I've had writers come in, but not science fiction writers. I think your library would be a fantastic resource for any fantasy author, and I think writers would be foolish not to pay attention to it. So to that end, as we tie off uh, our wonderful talk here, if a writer wanted to use your collection or to, to contact you to, you know, to come by and check it out, how would they do that? Uh, the best way uh, would be to phone me or to email me. Email is the better way because then I can take time to respond to it. The email is storywonders9 at gmail.com. Okay, and then they just sort of get in touch and you, you set up an appointment time, I guess? Yeah. The way people usually do it is they uh, have said they come in such and such a time and I'm in. I make sure the, the dirty dishes are out of the sink. And if they wish to be shown around, I can talk longer than we have just spoken. But I have learned how to focus and show them what they're looking for, and then just let them be. The gentleman who's looking for Dragon Tales, for instance, pulled out mm -hmm. a stack of books, and I just left them with a cup of tea. That's so, wonderful. Okay, well, I mean, uh, this has just been the most charming, wonderful conversation, Norman. I'm really grateful for the time you've given us, and that you've created this incredible resource that I wish I'd learned about years ago. Well, the tea kettle's always on. Thank you again so much for your time, Norman. This has been so wonderful. Well, thank you for inviting me. Uh, it's been wonderful as well. This has been Unknown Worlds of the Merrill Collection, hosted by myself, Oliver Brackenbury, and produced by Chris Dickey as part of the Friends of Merrill. The Friends are an all-volunteer group dedicated to promoting the Merrill Collection through events and projects like this show. Learn more at friendsofmerrill.org. You can also check out the show notes for our social media links, and to further explore today's topic. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time in another world.